Section 87 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Nater. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases. By John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bumble. Problematic Cases. Part 6. The Wackerle Puzzle. Part 4. The witness was shown a certificate of his examination for an insurance policy dated at Cincinnati in 1868, on a policy he had previously stated he took out in Milwaukee in the year 1867. He did not remember having been in Cincinnati at that time. He could give no reason for being re-examined on a policy taken out in 1867. He stated that he lived in Detroit in 1869. He might have visited Cincinnati, but he did not remember it. He had an indistinct recollection that he did go to Cincinnati, but he could not tell for certain. He stated that his memory was not good, that they had one child, born a couple of months after they arrived at Quincy. It was a boy. He was asked if his wife was not suffering with pains of labor when they got off the cars, and if his wife was not taken to the house of a policeman, and if a child was not born there. He stated that the child was born in the house he rented, that the dead child was buried before the child referred to was born, that he was never shown the depositions which were presented at the trial, that he was never asked to change his name to Christopher Wackerle, that Christopher was a larger and much stouter man, that he, Christopher, was four years younger, that he had not seen him since 1873, that he was William Wackerle, and the husband of the plaintiff, that the reason why he did not apply for a pension until the year 1878 was that he did not know that a discharged soldier was entitled to a pension, that their children were all young when they died, that his wife paid the premiums for the insurance, the proceeds of the sale of the farm and other property she put into United States bonds. At the close of the depositions, William Wackerle was requested to write his name. The signature compared perfectly with the undoubted signature of William Wackerle in the original application for insurance in the Etna, with only the natural difference which the increased age would make. This closed the evidence for the defense. Upon the part of the prosecution, Dr. Moses S. Bassett of Quincy, Illinois, being sworn, testified that he was a physician and surgeon, had practiced thirty years, knew William Wackerle at Quincy, got acquainted with him when he first came there. In the fall of 1870, or 1871, was called one morning by a policeman to see a woman in labor. The policeman stated that he picked the woman up in the street. He sent his stepson, who is a physician, to attend her. A few days later, a man came to see him about a baby that was born at the time my stepson attended the case. That man was William Wackerle. The child had an unusual disease for a child. I recognized Mrs. Wackerle here as the mother. I afterwards attended Mr. Wackerle when he was sick. This man here is not the William Wackerle I knew in Quincy. He is two inches taller than that man and has more prominent cheekbones. The William Wackerle I attended had different hair and eyes from this man. He had blue eyes and reddish auburn hair. It was rather long and rolled up at the ends without being curly. 
He was more effeminate looking than this man. This man has some resemblance to him, but I am positive that he is not the man. George Tenderidge, being sworn, testified that he was a druggist in Quincy. He knew William Wackerle there, and saw him frequently. He was satisfied that this was not the man. Wackerle, whom he knew, was not as tall as this man. His face was not as long, nor his forehead the same shape. William Wackerle's forehead was very protuberant. The deposition of J. Henry Heiner was read. It was to the effect that he knew William Wackerle, who resided at Quincy, ten or twelve years ago. He was about five feet six inches tall. His whiskers were of a bright auburn, and his hair a little darker. Wackerle did not shave at all then, said he could identify him if Wackerle would tell what was the contents of a certain box that came with them. The deposition of Alexander Ramsey, ex-governor of Minnesota, was then read. He knew William Wackerle in Minnesota, had only a moderate acquaintance with him. He was a stout man, and about five feet six inches tall, with a red complexion. The picture shown to him, Ramsey, differed from him entirely. He could trace no resemblance between it and the Wackerle he knew. Upon cross-examination he stated that he could not recollect exactly whether his hair was dark or not. Wackerle looked like a peasant from Europe. If a man cut his hair short, shaved clean, except a moustache, put on a clean shirt and good clothes, it is possible that after fourteen years he would not be able to recollect him from his picture. Frederick H. Magdeburg's deposition was read. He said he knew Mrs. Valburga Wackerle at Milwaukee. He also knew William Wackerle in January 1867. During that month, Wackerle made an application to him as agent of the mutual life for insurance upon his life, which was granted. The picture of William Wackerle, which had been shown him, is not the picture of the Wackerle whom he knew. He bore no resemblance to him. Mrs. Valburga Wackerle, the plaintiff, was recalled in rebuttal. She stated that she was married in Chaska in 1858. Her first child was named George William and was born at Carver. The child died and was buried in New Orleans. Her second child was born there. It was named George. It died when two weeks old and was buried beside the other child. They went from New Orleans to Cincinnati. It was about 1860 when they went to Cincinnati. They lived there one summer. From there they went to the farm to Minnesota. One child, Emma Teresa, was born in the latter place. Also another child named John. He lived but four months. A girl named Joanna was born at Milwaukee. It lived four months. The next child was born at Milwaukee. It was named Otto and lived four weeks. From there they went to Detroit. The next child was born in Quincy, Illinois. This was the last child she had, seven in all. The farm was sold in 1865. They lived in Detroit about one year in 1868. From there they went to Chicago and to Cincinnati again. That was in 1869. The reason William Wackerle was re-examined at Cincinnati was that the premium was not paid in time, and the company would not accept it unless he was re-examined. They went back to Detroit, and from there her husband went to California. Her daughter was then living. She followed him to Sacramento, met him at Skimminger's. Her daughter lived about eight months. About two months later they decided to move to Quincy. 
a zinc box was made by the undertaker to take emma's body along her husband assisted in changing the body from one coffin to the zinc box a wooden box was put around it it was sent to quincy by express it did not get there until two days after they got there when they arrived at quincy she was sick a policeman came to her and took her to a house where nobody lived her husband went for a woman to help her but before he came back she gave birth to a child dr bassett came to see her that night the child lived eight months the child that was born in quincy was born before emma was buried they lived in quincy until eighteen seventy two that year her husband went to california she got a letter from him stating that he was going off to work upon cross-examination she stated that her memory was pretty good about some things that she did not say to mr weinman that the man who came to her at griner's was not william wackerle but john that he looked more like christopher than like william she always lived happily with her husband her husband almost always wrote to her when he was away telling her where he was when he went south he wrote to her but for some time she did not hear from him when he wrote he said he was going farther south she wrote to john wackerle at st louis asking where her husband was she was anxious about him she knew john wackerle the man she saw in the courtroom did not look like john wackerle when her husband went to california he wrote to her this closed the testimony in the case mr glover made the argument for the defence he was followed by mr donohue for the plaintiff at about the same length after the charge of judge treat the jury retired and were out but a short time when they returned and the foreman said we the jury find for the plaintiff and assess the damages at six thousand three hundred dollars on the first count and two hundred and six dollars and ninety-nine cents on the second mr shepley the defendant's counsel gave notice of an appeal the case subsequently came up on appeal and a new trial was denied judge treat of the united states circuit court rendered the following opinion in the matter of a motion for a new trial valburga wackerle versus mutual life insurance company of new york a full examination has been made of the evidence which was one peculiarly for the jury it was on both sides full of doubt inconsistencies and contradictions turn as we may in the analysis of the evidence strange and irreconcilable aspects are presented the first point to be established by plaintiff was the death of her husband that rested on the testimony of several witnesses concerning the railroad accident and the identity of the person killed thereby the evidence of the plaintiff and others as to the skeleton exhumed some four or more years after such killing established to the satisfaction of the court that the exhumed skeleton was not that of the man killed supposed to be william wackerle on december twenty fifth eighteen seventy two the court directed the attention of the jury especially to that fact not that it was conclusive but because it tended to show what weight should be given to the testimony it may be that the exhumed skeleton was not that of william wackerle and hence the accuracy of plaintiff's testimony becomes questionable yet there was other evidence as to the death of the party killed independent of the exhumation in eighteen seventy seven it was therefore for the jury to decide whether despite the mistakes as to the identity of the skeleton william wackerle was killed as alleged the case as presented by the evidence was remarkable in many other respects concerning which it is useless to comment 
There are several depositions wanting which the court has been anxious to read and analyse, but by some accident they have disappeared. Hence the court has to rely on its memory as to their contents, and if a new trial is granted, after a long lapse of time, to supply the same. So far as the court was justified in alluding to or commenting on the evidence, it pointed in its charges sharply against the plaintiff's claim, so far as the identity depended on the exhumed skeleton. Still, the jury reached the conclusion that the plaintiff's husband was killed in 1872 as alleged, and consequently that the person produced by the defendant, and claiming to be William Wackerle, husband of the plaintiff, was not what he pretended. The case was tried at great length, and the largest scope given to a searching inquiry. Its novel aspects induced the court to admit every item of interest which could shed light on the subject. After full deliberation on the varied, inconsistent, and contradictory evidence, the jury reached a conclusion which was their exclusive province, and the court does not feel justified in interfering therewith. The motion for a new trial is overruled. While the company and William Wackerle came in for a large share of criticism and abuse at the hands of a portion of the press, it is but fair to publish a letter written to the San Francisco Bulletin, in which paper the letter was published, adding another chapter to this peculiar case. To the editor of the Bulletin. In the weekly Bulletin of October 11, 1882, on the fourth page, appeared an article headed, A Question of Identity wherein it is made to appear that I have lent myself to personate a dead man in order to assist the Etna and the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York to defraud a poor widow to receive an amount of $4,000 because of the death of her husband. I did not personate that husband, as it is given out. I am, or rather have been, the husband of the indefatigable Mrs. Wackerle, the same who applied to the companies above named for an insurance on his life for the benefit of his wife. Heaven be praised, I am not that lady's husband any more, having long since been divorced, nor have I ever been that unlucky lover and unknown pedestrian who was run over by a railroad train in Texas in 1872 and furnished that lady a convenient corpse. The companies very properly refused to pay those policies on my life because they always knew that I was not dead yet and the Etna Life Insurance Company was sustained in the refusal by the Supreme Court of the State of Louisiana, I having furnished abundant proof of my identity. Undismayed by this defeat, Mrs. Valburga Wackerle then tackled the Mutual Life Insurance Company and obtained a verdict in her favor before an accommodating jury, who were sufficiently softened by her tears to award her a handsome amount of money out of the pocket of a heartless corporation. This verdict ought to extinguish me, and I am truly sorry for the New York Sun, who, under date of October 18, 1882, and the Humboldt Times, who on the 21st of the same month favoured me with such extended notices, that I am ill-mannered enough still to be among the living. The same William Wackerle, who, in the year 1858, married Miss Valburga Schneider, lived with her to the month of June 1871, cohabited with her during that time raising a family of children i was born and baptized as william wackerle married as william wackerle got divorced as william wackerle and will always remain so in spite of my wife's studied refusal to recognize me 
and the sensational romances gotten up by the Sun newspaper, wherein I am made to figure as a double-dyed villain of the blackest hue, who aided and abetted the equally double-dyed villainous corporation named the Mutual Life Insurance Company of the City of New York. But the end is not yet, and before a higher tribunal, the persecuted Valburga will be confronted by witnesses who know me from my earliest childhood, by witnesses from Eureka, Humboldt County, from Sacramento City, and other places where we have been living, and who will unmistakably establish the fact that they knew us both as man and wife. Then she will probably take another tramp to Texas, and elsewhere, to hunt up further testimony for she is not the kind of woman who would willingly give up a large money stake i do not deny that all the sensational stuff published has annoyed me my acquaintance in a great many places of this state and michigan and illinois is large my reputation has been good wherever i lived and valuing it more than anything else i beg you would insert these lines at an early day in order that all my friends and acquaintances and the general public may know that I denounce all infamous reports published against me as unmitigated lies, which it shall be my aim to unravel and lay barren, even if the reputation of Valburga Wackerle as a heroine should suffer thereby. I likewise wish everybody, and the above-named journals especially, to know that my hiding-place is at a farm about twelve miles from Los Angeles City, in a district called the Azusa, which I acquired by dint of hard labor, and where I propose to live until I die for good and ever. November 6th, 1882. William Wackerle. End of section 87.